0: We're continuing in our worship, and as we started our series in the Kingdom Visions, uh, we find ourselves in the last uh, one today as we address the world. So let's have God's Word open us up to Matthew 6, verse 10, and then we will go to Romans 8, 18 to 25, but we'll begin with Matthew chapter 6, verse 10. When you're there, either in your hard copies in front of you, or you can look up on the screen, please rise for the reading of God's Word. Now this is God's holy and inerrant Word to us this morning, Matthew 6, 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Romans 8, beginning in verse 18. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we will wait for it with patience. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated and join us.
1: Uh, well, good morning, church. Uh, could we just once again greet each other? I feel as though the room is a bit deflated. It feels like the, uh, the Sixers-Brooklyn Nets game, a bit deflated. Uh, could we just say hello, uh, just greet each other once again? warmly, let's greet each other warmly. Yeah, come on, church. All right, let's go. Yeah, yeah, get out of here. All right, well, yeah, it's good to see all of you out here on this cold uh, winter day. Um, Yeah, let's get right into the Word of God this morning. Uh, Our vision statement is as follows, as we've been talking about and exploring. The vision of Eternal Life Mission Church Church is to see God's kingdom come and His will be done in our homes, communities, and the world. And for the past few months, we've been parsing this out, trying to understand what this vision statement actually is speaking of. And today, as we close this series out, uh, we want to focus now on this last section, this last part, and that is the world. Uh, This vision statement is in many ways uh, derived from the Lord's Prayer that we've just read found in Matthew 6 Verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, again, today our focus will be on this last area, the world. And there are two questions I'd like to ask this morning, is, and the first is this, what does it mean? What does it mean when we say we want to see the kingdom of God come to this entire world? And the second question we want to ask is this, how can we now participate in the coming of the kingdom of God to this world? So first, what do we mean when we say we want to see the kingdom come to the world? And number two, how can we partake or participate in the coming kingdom? So first, what do we mean? Well, there are two things that I'd like to explore. When we say we want to see the kingdom of God come to this world, uh, we're referring to two things. Now, I know I said we'll answer two questions, but then we'll get into two things. So it's actually a four part sermon, it's not a two part. But the two things I like to see is this. First, number one, when we say we want to see the kingdom of God come, we are saying that we want to see the kingdom reach all creatures. And second, we want to see the kingdom redeem all creation. First, we want to see the kingdom reach everyone. And second, we want to see the kingdom redeem the land. Creatures and creation. So first, uh, regarding creatures, the people. Uh, if we look at in the New Testament all throughout, when Jesus speaks of final things or when he uses or when he uh, is speaking his final words, Uh, He speaks of our duty to go out and to proclaim the gospel to all the nations. And so we find in Mark uh, 16, 15, these are Jesus' last words according to Mark. He says this, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. Or Matthew 28, 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. These these are Jesus' last words in the gospel of Matthew. Or Jesus' last words in Acts before he ascends is, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the world. See, Jesus makes clear that the good news of God's victory over sin and death through Jesus his Son ought to be proclaimed, heralded, not just in Jerusalem and Judea, not just in our homes and our communities, but to the ends of the earth. See, friends, Christianity is the first and the only religion with a global reach, so it isn't territorial, it has no borders, yet at the same time, it has absolutely no requisite to conform to a specific culture, to a specific language, or to a specific custom. For example, or in contrast, if you go to a mosque in Philadelphia or a mosque in Morocco, it'll largely be the same the same language, the same practice, the same customs. If you go to the Hindu temple out in Bucks County or a Hindu temple out in Singapore, it'll largely be the same, same customs, same language, same practices. But go to a church in Durham, North Carolina, or Dublin, Ireland, or Dhaka, Bangladesh, you'll find that the churches will use different languages, different cultures, different practices, different music, different customs. The form will all be different, but the substance will be the same. The same God is worshipped. The same message is preached. The same Savior is believed in. You see, Christianity is the only true global religion because at the heart of the Christian message is a person, not a practice. It is literally for everyone because it doesn't require that you first learn a new language, that you follow a new diet, or you abide by certain cultural customs. No, the only requisite is confessing the human condition that we are sinners in need of a Savior. See, this is the reason why the gospel is a global religion. This is the reason why Jesus calls us to go forth and proclaim the message to everyone, because he is the creator of this world and the redeemer of all of it. For those of you who know, the uh, New Testament that we have in our hands is uh, originally written uh, in ancient Greek. Uh, Not modern Greek, but ancient Greek. And even within ancient Greek, there are different dialects, but it's not the ancient classical Greek that we find in Plato or Aristotle. The New Testament Greek is actually written in a very different dialect. Uh, I have one of the earliest manuscripts up for you to take a look, and this is what it looks like. Now, this dialect that the New Testament was written in was so different, so different from classical Greek, that some people began to hypothesize that biblical Greek is a type of holy dialect. Some people started to argue, this is a Holy Spirit dialect. It was some form of holy language that was given to the church so that we can write the New Testament Scriptures. Now, many held this belief until archaeologists started to dig up receipts, contracts, everyday documents that used this same dialect. In other words, what they found through these documents was that this dialect that the New Testament was written in was actually a marketplace language. It was a common dialect, and some even considered it to be a crude dialect. See, it wasn't like classical Greek, intellectual, highly sophisticated, musical with this amazing cadence. It was a common language. It was a type of language that you would hear on broad street, not the language that you would hear in the lecture halls of the University of Pennsylvania. Now, at first, some people considered considered this to be a major source of scorn and shame. They said, oh my goodness, the language of the New Testament is not as sophisticated and elegant as classical Greek. But others said, see, that's exactly the point. When God chose a language to communicate his message of the gospel, he didn't choose the most advanced and the most cultured dialect. No, he chose the most understandable, the most accessible, the most widely used. The gospel went forth in a dialect that even a slave or a child can hear and understand. It was written in a marketplace language. And once again, as the gospel went forth, reaching beyond the Greek-speaking world, people began to immediately translate the Bible into the language of other people. There was no such thing as a translation committee. The people weren't scared about mistranslating things or getting the syntax or the grammar wrong. No, their aim was proclamation, not preservation. They weren't thinking, how can we preserve this holy text? No, their aim was, how can we proclaim it so that everyone will hear and believe? Their mission was conversion, supernatural conversion. It wasn't conformity to a specific culture or language. See, at the heart of Christianity was the message of Jesus. The medium didn't matter. You know, just as an example, you know, Islam. Um, Islam doesn't believe in the translation of the Quran, and they don't believe in the translation of the Quran because they believe Arabic is a holy language, and so translating it would bring defilement, confusion. And so, if you want to be a Muslim, you have to learn Arabic. In fact, if you go to present-day Iran, um, they they weren't an Arabic-speaking country at one time, but as, Muslim, as Islam came in, they changed the entire language of the culture of the country. But the God of the Bible, the God whom we worship, is both holy and perfect. But not only is he holy and perfect, he is also a missional God. He wants all people, nation, tribe, and tongue to know him. And he wants everyone to know him, not through some foreign language, but he wants everyone to know him through their mother tongue. He wants all people to worship him in the most genuine and sincere way possible in the language that we know. See, when we say we want to see the kingdom of God come into this entire world, we are saying that we desire to see God being worshipped, Jesus exalted through the work and the power of the Holy Spirit in every language, in every culture. See, that's the vision that we have when we get to heaven. If you look at Revelation, we have surrounding the throne of God, Every language, people, tribe, and tongue worshiping him with the same song, but in a different language, with different expressions. So this is what we mean. When we say we want to see the kingdom come to the entire world, we're saying we want to see the gospel being proclaimed to everyone, to all human creatures. However, that's not the only thing. We want to see the gospel go forth reaching all creatures, but we also want to see the gospel redeem all creation. And that's the second point. This is what it says in today's passage, Romans 8, verses 20 and 21. Paul writes this, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. See, in this passage, Paul is drawing our attention to the fact that when sin entered the world, it not only messed up humans, but it messed up creation. It messed up the physical land. In other words, we weren't the only ones subject to decay and death, but the earth. Mother Earth, as we call it, or the physical land, was also in bondage to corruption. If you remember back in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned and they fell, right, they all received curses. This is what's going to happen. But do you, do you remember that the earth, the land, was also cursed? This is what it says, Genesis three seventeen to 19. God says this, "'Cursed is the ground because of you, Adam.'" So the ground is cursed. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. You see, Paul is saying this. Due to sin, not only are we cursed, humans cursed, but the land is cursed. And he's talking about, he's talking, he's saying, listen, sometimes what this means is sometimes we're going to sow, we're going to plant, we're going to water and tend faithfully, but the ground isn't going to produce fruit all the time. Thorns and thistles will come from it. There's going to be this harmony, disharmony between the land and its gardener, you and I. Now, land and gardening is actually a metaphor for work. And see, this is the reason why work can sometimes feel like Work. Work feels like work. Work becomes laborious and difficult and frustrating and futile. Why? It's not just because of your shortcomings or my shortcomings or the shortcomings of your employees, employers, but it's also due to the fact that we are living in a broken world. The land is in bondage to corruption, Paul says. The land is subjected to bondage. And corruption. Remember about 25 years ago, 25 good long years ago, there was this really cool invention called the portable CD player. I have it up for you. Anyone old and owned a, uh, a Kobe? <laughs> no, it's the original Kobe, yeah. This was an amazing invention about 25, 30 years ago. And it was amazing because you didn't have to fast-forward or rewind to listen to a specific track. You remember the first time you actually uh, pressed next, 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 and you listened to the track that you wanted without much waiting. This was a great invention, but there was a huge problem when this first came out. It was a portable CD player. And some of our young folks are, probably don't even know what this is. But it, it was this, very, uh, it was this um, portable uh, player that you can take around with you but one of the biggest problems was, the flaw, was that the CD would skip. Remember that? It was portable, but realistically, you actually couldn't walk around with it. You couldn't have it in your backpack, walk around with it. You couldn't hold it in your pocket and walk around with it. Because every time you moved, the CD would skip. I remember you know, this came out um, around the time, or it got really popular when I was in high school. And you know, all the high school students, we would have these cool headphones on. We would rock out to our music and we would have uh, the CD players in our pockets, and everyone walked with the CD player holding onto their pockets to make sure it wouldn't skip. And with one leg, we actually w- we would we'd try you know, to, not, to not move it as much, and we would sort of limp around like this, rocking around with music. Nowadays, kids, you know, their hands are like this, right, because their cell phones are in it. But back then, we all had our hands on our pockets, and, you know, it, it was actually quite foolish because, you know, for me, I was, I was into alternative rock. And so, you know, when, whenever we take the bus or walk to school and walk the hallways, you know, we would all be just banging our heads, pretending like we're actually listening to music, but it's actually skipping all the way. See, this is what the Bible is talking about. See, not only are we like a scratched-up CD that's going to skip at every track or every second, but we're played in a CD player that's constantly in flux. It's being shaken and thrown around. See, this is the reason why there are so many skips in our lives. Nothing rarely goes according to plan. And sometimes our labors are futile. Sometimes our efforts, we try hard, but it produces thorns and thistles, the system is broken, institutions feel corrupt, laws are biased, and it feels as though the world is just rebelling against everything we try to do. You know, a few weeks ago, I introduced a book uh, entitled Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson, and I did recommend it to the congregation, and uh, actually one member reached out saying, I read the book, it was great. I'm not going to mention who that is, but thanks, Tyler. <laughs> you encouraged me. But Uh, In that book, again, I recommend that you read it, but chapter 6, Brian Stevenson, he shares a story about this 14-year-old boy named Charlie. Charlie lived with his mother and her boyfriend uh, by the name of George. And the relationship was a very abusive one. George would abuse her physically. And just in that time that he was writing, um, his mother, Charlie's mother, um, on three different occasions had to receive medical treatment because she was beaten so badly. One night, as Charlie and his mother are sitting down playing cards, George walks in, drunk as usual, and he calls Charlie's mother to the kitchen, and without any warning, he just punches her in the face, violently. She wasn't expecting it. She gets hit, and her head falls back. She cracks her head on the metal counter. Charlie sees this. And he runs to her. He gets all the towels and the paper uh, and the tissues that he can to sort of uh, help her. And she's bleeding profusely. There's blood everywhere. And she's actually losing consciousness. This happened before, and so Charlie was taught by his mother that when this happens, that he has to call 911. He has to call the ambulance, not to report George, but he needs to call the ambulance to get medical help. So Charlie, as he tries to console his mother, help his mother, he's calling out to her, and she's not responding. He thinks she's dead. And so he goes to the bedroom where the phone was, and there he sees George sleeping, snoring. And as he goes to pick up the phone, he's, he was reminded that George actually held a, hand, a handgun in one of the drawers. And so Charlie, without thinking, reaches for it, and he holds it towards George. George is snoring, and all of a sudden, as George stops for a quick second, Charlie reacts. He doesn't know what to do and he pulls the trigger. He shoots him and he dies. The prosecutor at that time said Charlie was a 14-year-old boy weighed less than 100 pounds, less than 5 feet tall. He was a scrawny, scrawny little boy. But the prosecutor said he killed a man and that man, George, he was actually a law enforcer. And he said he needs, and the prosecutor argued that he needed to be trialed as an adult. So the courts agreed and they put him in adult county jail. Brian Stevenson, he gets a phone call saying, "Listen, you need to help my grandson. Charlie's grandmother had called." So he drives over to the courthouse, l- reads the report, and he there he speaks with Charlie. Charlie comes in, he's in shackles and he's shaking. So Brian tries to get him to talk. He said, hey, Charlie, let me know what happened. Talk to me. And he's asking him over and over again, hey, Charlie, let me know what happened. Talk to me. We can talk about anything. Let's talk. Let's talk. And Charlie doesn't speak. He just stares in the distance as though he has no soul. And so Brian tries to do everything he can. Tell me about your mom. Tell me about school. What's your favorite food? Have you ever tried sweet potato casserole? What kind of car do you want to buy? He tries to make it light. And as he's trying to get him to talk, he bumps into him lightly. He leans into him. And there he felt Charlie actually lean back. So Brian realized, okay, there's something there. And so taking a risk, he actually puts his arm around Charlie. And as he does, he sees that Charlie begins to cry hysterically. He's trembling and he's crying. And after he stops crying, he utters these words. Last night, there were three of them, three men. They hurt me and they made me do things I didn't want to do. And upon saying that, he couldn't stop crying. He, he, he started shaking violently and started trembling. He started crying hysterically. And there, Brian is listening, saying, hey, tell me, what, what happened? What are you talking about? And there, Brian realized that he wasn't talking about what happened that night with his mother's boyfriend. He was talking about what happened in jail. He goes on, the night before, they came again. And as time went on, more men, I could, more men than I could count. And Brian recalls that as he sat there, and he held on to him, the child gripped him so tightly with with a grip that he said he he could never imagine that a 14-year-old boy could could have. And Brian's like, how did this happen? What is this little boy doing in an adult jail? So he says, listen, I'm going to get you out of here. And the boy says, please don't leave me. Please don't leave me. As Brian recalls this incident, he starts to ask himself the question, what went wrong? Who is at fault? As he's trying to draw the line, he's saying, who is at fault here? Where is the brokenness? At whose feet can we lay this ad? Is it the mom? Is it George? Is it the prosecutor? Is it the court? You know, if we're dead honest, the problem of sin goes beyond us as individuals. Brian talks about how all of creation is broken. And all of creation needs redemption. It's not just individuals, but it's in the entire world. See, this is why, this is why today's passage tells us that all of creation groans. It groans as if it's in the pain of childbirth. For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, because when that day comes, Romans 8 19 says, all creation will be made new. You know, if you look at today's passage, uh, verse 23, it uses the language of first fruits. And this language of first fruits is actually used elsewhere in Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. And so the logic is this Jesus was the first to rise from the dead. And as he is the first fruits, we become the harvest that follows. And the hope is that you and I, according to 1 Corinthians 15, you and I, creatures, will rise again from the dead just as Jesus rose again. But here in Romans 18, Paul uses the language of first fruits to refer to us. We are the first fruits of the Holy Spirit. And when we experience renewal and redemption in Jesus, he's saying, then all creation will follow. The land will follow. The world will follow. We are the first fruits, and all creation will then be made new. You know, there's a song that we uh, sing sometimes at church, and the lyrics are just so beautifully written. Uh, it, it goes like this Do you feel the world is broken? We do. Do you feel the shadows deepen? We do. But do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? We do. Do you wish that you can see it all made new? We do. Is all creation groaning? It is. Is a new creation coming? It is. Is the glory of the Lord to be the light within our midst? It is. And is it good that we remind ourselves of this? It is. See, when we say we want to see the kingdom of God come to this earth, to this entire world, we are talking about the renewal of all creatures and the redemption of all creation. It's a holistic gospel where it's not just individuals who are renewed, but the entire land, the entire society, entire communities, the entire world, all of brokenness, the futility that the land was subjected to, all of this gets redeemed gloriously because they are all his good creation. So then the second question is this. Shortly, how can we participate in this? How can we participate in the coming of the kingdom of God to this world? And again, just two points. First, and the most obvious as we have explored, is the proclamation of the gospel. In Matthew 24, 14, Jesus says this, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Now, this is a very intricate passage, and I can't get too much into this. But basically, or shortly, Jesus is saying this, The kingdom of God will come climactically, The end of the world will come when the gospel is proclaimed throughout the entire world. You know, just before this verse, Matthew, he speaks of wars and famines, terrible things that's going to happen. But those are not the things that herald the end. Those are not the things that bring about the end of the age. But what brings about the kingdom ultimately coming is the completion of this mission, to go to all the world and to proclaim the good news of Jesus. You see, our mission as a church can't just be restricted to our families. Our mission as a church can't just be restricted to our communities, but we have to reach the world. This Thursday, let me remind you, in St. Patrick's Day, and it's not a day uh, about day drinking. (laughs) It's not a day when happy hour ends or starts early and ends late. St. Patrick wasn't a uh, leprechaun, he was actually one of the earliest missionaries and one of the most effective and powerful missionaries that the church has seen. St. Patrick's Day is a day that we should be reminded of gospel proclamation. Uh, You know, St. Patrick, he was actually born in Britain, but at the age of 16, he was captured by barbarian Irish pirates, and he was taken to Ireland to work as a slave laborer for six years. After six years had passed, St. Patrick had found a way to escape. He traveled by foot 200 miles to the shores of Ireland, and there he got on a boat, and he returned back home to Britain. And it was during his uh, time as a slave he started to take his faith more seriously, started to understand the meaning of the gospel. And as he got back home to To Britain, the more he read scripture, the more he read about the call and the commission of the church to go forth to all the world and proclaim the gospel, he was reminded of Ireland. He was reminded of those pirates. He was reminded of the barbarians. He was reminded of those who forced him to slave labor. And so Patrick, he actually gets back on a boat, goes back to the land that subjected him to slavery. And always carrying around with him a dagger for safety. St. Patrick went throughout all the land of Ireland, preaching the gospel, converting thousands, planting dozens of churches throughout the land. And the story ends somewhat climactically with uh, St. Patrick actually baptizing the king of Ireland as he proclaims the good news to him. See, church, you and I, we ought not to just be concerned with our immediate sphere, our families and our communities. But the calling is to go forth to the entire land, to all the earth, and to proclaim the good news of the gospel. Uh, St. Patrick actually wrote in his biography, this is how he begins his story. He says, my name is Patrick, I am a sinner, a simple country person, and the least of all believers. So how do we see the kingdom? How can we participate in it? It's through proclamation, and second, shortly, it's through prayer. If you look in the Bible, there's this deep connection between the coming of the kingdom of God and prayer. If you look at Luke 18, the parable of the widow, right Jesus ends the parable by saying, "When, when the Son of Man returns, will he find face, faith on earth? In other words, will people be praying when the Son of Man returns?" Or Revelation eight, the, the seven seals, when the final seventh seal is broken, meaning that the kingdom is coming, what is the seventh and final seal? It's the prayers of the saints. What we find here in Romans 8, shortly after today's passage, after it speaks of the hope of the future glory, it transitioned to prayer. Romans 8, 26 to 27 says this, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now, how do we participate in the kingdom of of God advancing throughout all the world? Yes, it's through proclamation, but also it is through prayer. Throughout the Bible, there's this connection between prayer and the coming of the kingdom of God. In fact, Matthew 6.10, the verse that we read, is actually a prayer Jesus teaches us. Hey, you want to see the kingdom of God come? Pray for it. Pray that the kingdom will advance throughout all the world. See, there's nothing that we can do actively to bring about an accelerated advancement of the kingdom. But Jesus teaches us to pray. And it's not just our weekly prayer, our, our weak prayers. It's not the meager prayers that we offer up saying, "God, thank you for this food and thank you for this day." It's not the meandering prayers that we offer up from time to time. But it's the prayer that the Holy Spirit in us groans and moans and helps us. It's the prayer that the Holy Spirit intercedes now on behalf of us praying for the kingdom, for the will of God, for the future redemption of not just the sons of God, but the future redemption and the renewal of all creation. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. And so, friends, two things. On a real practical note, if your attention is solely upon your workplace, your family, uh, your your community. I encourage you to broaden your scope, broaden your heart, broaden your concern. Pick a country, any country. I, I encourage you, uh, just look up Google 1040 window and just pick a country in the 1040 window. Think about how you can actively participate in the advancement of the kingdom in those areas, but most importantly, begin pray. When you pray, pray, your kingdom come. Your will be done throughout all the world. Would you join me in prayer at this time?